101 Dalmatians, The Sword and the Stone, The Jungle Book, and The Aristocrats. No, wait, The Aristocats. Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Fifteen Dalmatian puppies. Stolen. But they call the police. The humans have tried everything. Now it's up to us dogs. I'll sound the alert. One long howl. Two short. One yip and a woof. Uh, two yips, sir. Sounds like a number. Three fives of thirteen. No, no, that's fifteen, sir. Fifteen spotted puddles stolen. Oh, bother dash. It sounds like... Puppies, sir. Of course, puppies. Welcome back to the School of Movies Disney Specials. Now, we've been reviewing all of the Disney animated classics since Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and we are now at 101 Dalmatians. If you haven't heard any of them beforehand, definitely a good idea to go back and listen to them, because that way you get the kind of the cultural history of Walt Disney Studios as the 20th century went along which in itself is a history of premier theatrical animation, at least up until the 21st century. With the exception of the Don Bluth Company in the 80s, Walt Disney was it. So, everything then changed. Between 1959 and 1961, it's like Disney was transformed. The difference between Sleeping Beauty and 101 Dalmatians, not in terms of quality, I actually think they're both incredibly high-quality films in their own right, but their focus and what they do and how they do it is so completely different. 101 Dalmatians is a, a incredibly modern film in terms of its sensibilities. It's the first, like, contemporary Disney film that presents a young, married, professional couple doing regular man-woman things. It's got telephones and cigarettes and cars, and it's in the 60s, so you've got these sort of... the, the fashion of the time. It's not a million miles away from Peanuts. Right. Do you know I never thought about that? Yeah. Uh, just go, go for it, whatever you want. On, I mean, Sharon, you love Dalmatians. I do. I this even above Alice in Wonderland. This is definitely my favourite of the early ones. Um, if we're discounting Fantasia, um, <laughs> which I know you do. Um, I always but, say Fantasia doesn't count. It doesn't have any narrative. Doesn't have any characters. <laughs> Um, but, I mean, first of all, the the original book of 101 Dalmatians by uh, Dodie Smith, I love with a passion. It was one of my favourite stories when I was little. Um, and uh, I... Even even going above and beyond that, because this is a they, they do play a little bit fast and loose with some of the uh, interpretation. But I'll come to that when I talk about the things I don't like about this film, which Dodie are Smith, few. But uh, before there. you start um, on the this is how this film was diminished. Dodie Smith contacted Bill Pete, the guy who pretty much storyboarded the whole film, and, and told him that he'd actually done it better than she did. Oh yeah, so no, no, no. she it's, thought it, it was better. So that, the, that's the unusual. Yeah, I know. The thing I'm going to criticise is one very small and very specific thing. Um, but um, in general, I think it's a very uh, faithful to the heart of the story adaptation. Um, except for the fact that there's maybe a bit more emphasis on um, the, the Pongo's journey to find the puppies in the first place. Um, I think the the emphasis in, in terms of sort of the questing in this one is more on getting them back 
Um, but I just think that the look of it, I am absolutely in love with. the What I said about there being a dreamlike quality to it, I think it comes from the fact that the, the backgrounds are so indistinct. Um, they're, they're almost impressionistic. And to have the contrast between that and then these foreground characters doing such... Um, close to realistic things. I mean, I know you're going to talk about the the actual technicalities of how this film was made, but the way they focused on uh, character movement and uh, things looking the way they should look. And as you say, again, because it's contemporary, because it's, um, it's set in the now and set in the real, you don't, well, aside from the talking dog factor. Um, <laughs> I wonder you, where you were going to get to that. <laughs> you, you don't have that kind of um, fantasy land... Um, uh, Disconnect. Exactly, yeah. So, so the backgrounds are almost... I think the reason that it feels right that they are very hazy and indistinct is that you know what a living room looks like. You don't need them to animate every little frill and, and ribbon of what somebody's um, uh, curtains would look like because you, you can fill all those blanks in yourself. Um, and it, there's just a quality about it that maybe I watched it for the first time very late at night or something, but it's there's, there's certain things that I just get these little flashes of, of sensation and that's what it brings to mind for me. Um, the scene in The Matrix where they all go into the building where the, the windows are walled up and the phone doesn't work has the same effect on me and I don't quite know why. Um, but these, you know, these are things that, that all create this weird sense memory for me of, of something being uh, simultaneously clear and real, yet hazy and not real all at the same time. I actually totally agree. I love the, I love the look of this film, both from the new technology they were deploying on the animation and the background art. It, the backgrounds feel very modern. It feels like they've made the look match the setting in a really nice way. And the music as well feels as a nice jazzy. I mean, there's not a whole lot of like, there's two songs, I guess in the yeah. entire film. And one I'm of them is barely sure, a song. Yeah. It's like, it's two lines, but it, yeah, it really just lends it a nice, you can feel the era it's from and that it's trying to recreate. And it feels really just genuine and just kind of right. And I, I, yeah, I really like it. The voices, the animation's great. Uh, Cruella de Vil is out of her mind, and I don't, I can't wrap my head around her as a character, but she's really entertaining. Well, Cruella de Vil is a wonderful example of just somebody who's so selfish that they're psychotic, that they just, yeah. that they don't see why anybody should ever say no to them, and it drives them crazy. Um, she, she is actually an excellent, and I, the thing I like about her is her conflict with Anita is is a real conflict. We all have, we all know people who are just so overbearing. And just if you ever have to say no to them, you're like, hang on, have I just made an enemy of you for life? Really? Over this? Fifteen puppies. How marvellous, how marvellous, how perfectly. Oh, Oh, the devil take it, they're mongrels. No spots, no spots at all. What a horrid little white rat. They're not mongrels. They'll get their spots. Just wait and see. That's right, Cruella. They'll have their spots in a few weeks. Oh, well, in that case, I'll take them all, the whole litter. Just name your prize, dear. I'm afraid we can't give them up. Poor Pedita, she'd be heartbroken. Anita, don't be ridiculous. 
You can't possibly afford to keep them. You can scarcely afford to feed yourselves. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure we'll get along. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I know. Roger's... <laughs> Roger's songs. <laughs> well, now, really, enough of this nonsense. I'll pay you twice what they're worth. Come now, I'm being more than generous. Blast this pen! Blast this wretched, wretched pen! <laughs> when can the puppies leave their mother? Two weeks? Three weeks? Never. What? We're 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 not not s selling the the puppies. Not 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 a single single one. Do you understand? Why, Anita? Is he serious? I, I really don't know, Roger. <laughs> well, Cruella, he seems. Oh, surely he must be joking. No, 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 no. I, I, I mean it. You're, you're not getting one. No, not, not one. And, and, and that's, that's final. Why, you horrid men! You, you. All right. Keep the little beast for all I care. Do what you like with them. Drown them. But I warn you, Anita, we're through. I'm through with all of you. I'll get even. Just wait. You'll be sorry, you fools. You, you idiots. Yeah, just uh, there is something um, tangible about her character. There's no, like, wicked stepmother here. There's no, um, like, evil queen, evil witch. She's just... Uh, I, 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 was, I was talking to Lyra and trying to explain how Cruella was created and just said, basically, imagine if Veruca Salt grew up from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, just a little girl who whenever she asked for some, what, whenever she demanded something of her daddy, her daddy said, yes, there you go, Cruella. And she got it. And every time she got it to the point where she doesn't know how to react when she doesn't get it. And, um, and, and thus her behavior becomes ridiculous and erratic and, and, and uh, illegal. <laughs> To the point that she's basically like this Dalmatian cult thing easily. I don't know if it wasn't back then, but the whole kidnapping. Well, she's she buys up all these dogs from pet stores, apparently. Uh, and but the actual intention of turning them into a cult is an illegal act, as far as it, Sharon, is that correct? Um, as far as I'm aware, it's not so much that it's illegal to make coats out of dogs, it's the fact that she plainly doesn't have a license to do it. Yeah. When when people talk about illegal puppy farms, that's that's the kind of thing that's that's going on. She, but Cruella's she, the sort of person who'd be like, "Oh, I don't need a license," and absolutely. Like, you know, wave that yeah. away. But like, you, you, know, you were she's asking above about those laws. You were asking about how she'd managed to acquire this other um, eighty-five Dalmatian puppies without the police being down on her. And, and like I said, it's the same in the book. They point out that she has actually acquired them all legally. It's what she plans on doing with them, which is. If it, it, even if it's not completely illegal, it's obviously ridiculously unethical. As a side, that house that she kept them in has got a fucking stink. <laughs> if you've had yeah. one puppy in your house, <laughs> you'll know what that, that house can smell like in just a few days. Uh, keeping a hundred, well, so keeping 99 of them in there for a while, they'd, some of them, like, they'd, they'd be dead. Some of them would be dead. Of, of just the general state of uncleanliness and the, the Horace and Jasper would not be able to go about their day without bunches of rags to their faces with the, this, the stench. Um, sorry to get gross on your folks. 
But but yeah, there's a, there's a practicality to what Cruella is doing. She actually did buy these dogs legitimately, and the fact that they end up back at uh, Roger and um, Anita. Anita's house, Roger and Anita's house. She, Cruella technically legally doesn't have a leg to stand on because if she demands the dogs back, people are going to ask, "Why do you want this many dogs?" And then she'll have to say, well, I want to make them into a coat. And then they'll say, well, you can't. Well, they would also look at things like the, the uh, conditions that she was keeping them in, which yeah. are inappropriate for a... And a, inspect that house, which is basically going to be waist deep in shit. Yeah, they'd be confiscating <laughs> them from her anyway. But again, we're getting sidetracked into the, we are, the realities of I, the situation. I like realities and practicalities. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's true. <laughs> but yeah, the, but I, I always worry because it was like, well, hang on. Aren't Roger and Padita going to get... get Sorry, I'm Roger and Padita. That's a weird pairing. Aren't Roger and Anita going to get um, uh, you know, caught and, and told to hand them back to Cruella? I fretted about that. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, if they can demonstrate that. that they can look after them properly, yeah. then... But imagine how much money she'd have had to spend on all these thoroughbred pedigree Dalmatian puppies. Imagine, just for a coat. She is the dog version of Buffalo Bill. Would you pet me? I'd pet me. It's <laughs> grim. What a horrible notion. Cruella de Vil. That's it. Cruella de Vil. Cruella de Vil. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. Oh, To Roger. see her is to take a sudden chill. <gasps> Cruella. Cruella. She's like a spider waiting for the... She ought to be locked up and never released. The world was such a wholesome place until Cruella, Cruella de Vil. Carry on about how wonderful this film is. Um, one of the other things I really like about this, actually, is uh, the portrayal of Roger and Anita. Mm. Um, oh, yes, which is, they're, they're much more three-dimensional in this than they are in the book. That's that's one thing that I really like about the translation. Um they are, I mean, they're lovely people in the book, but they're very much seen from the dog's eye view and that what they do with their day-to-day life is all kind of irrelevant because the dogs don't really care. Yeah. Congo um, regards Roger as his pet. Yeah, indeed. Which is cute. Um, but I, I like the fact that, and again, this all ties in with the idea of it being contemporary and it being set in the 60s, but that it appears, if you put the pieces together, that Anita is a working woman. She, you know, she doesn't fall into this category of somebody who's being set up to be a mother um, and uh, entirely tied to the domestic side of things. Um, and, um, you know, Roger is, um, he's a, a really kind, um, creative, interesting man what he's not is a bold, brave, handsome prince. When he stands up to Cruella, he's shaking. He's terrified of her, but he stands up to her. Yeah. And I love that moment that you, you've got this sort of vulnerability in him, but he's still very brave in that particular situation. I love how he 
antagon like playfully antagonistic he is also just with his music upstairs when Corella first visits. Yeah. <laughs> Going from piano to trombone. <laughs> right at the floor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and again, the animation on on Roger and Anita infuriatingly good. Yeah, there's the the, the bit where uh, uh, Roger's um, freaking out uh, as is Pongo when uh, Padita's uh, giving birth, and um, Roger fumbles his pipe, and they they showcase this little bit of sort of the little it spins in the air, and he does this like he he flails his hands to pick it up again. It's just this wonderful little moment, and just it really made me focus on the details of of this film, and this was when the Xerox process kicked in, and this is something yes. that lasted all the way up to. Uh, Little Mermaid, and basically, it's. I think they introduced Caps in um, Rescuers Down Under, but then they really kicked it in with Beauty and the Beast. So this was a, a big, long period of Disney having changed their look from ink and paint, and they had to let go all their ink and paint specialists. So, effectively, it's like imagine being a cell animator your entire life, and then being told, "Oh, it's all CG now." And you've got to go. And then suddenly you, the, just the whole bottom gets yanked out from under your world. So obviously uh, Walt was very unhappy with the, the fact that he had to change at all. And he really didn't like 101 Dalmatians. And it took him years to forgive the director for making it like that. Yeah. Basically the Xerox technology transferred the animator's drawings right to the cell rather than having the inker having to kind of play a middleman between the sketchy drawing and getting it just on the cell, but by hand, by painting, which really cut costs big time. And, and I think I kind of like the look just as an animator, because I feel like it preserves the integrity of the animators drawing a little bit better. Like there's something occasionally kind of swimmy and kind of floaty about that nice, clean inked line that kind of just drifts ever so slightly. It leads to a little bit less of a, especially you can really see it in snow white kind of for early inking. Like a lot of the specifics change a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The specifics of face expressions really drift a lot. So it's kind of hard to get a really clear expression out of it. Whereas as soon as they make this transition with 101 Dalmatians, there's a lot more really specific drawing detail that I feel like really shines through but it did mean like 80% of the studio got laid off yeah, or 80% like, yeah, just, I mean, this was cataclysmic in animation terms because they were 80% of the people who produced, you know, theatrical animated films in America. Yeah. It really was a massive layoff, but I mean, it, I mean, the film ended up being very successful though. Big hit, especially considering how much less it cost to make. It, It was a necessary change to keep Disney animation going and, to keep these films getting made, but still definitely like any, any shift that results in those kinds of layoffs is always a pretty tragic and it's in a small way, even if it's necessary. It was uh, 4 million to make this as opposed to 6 million for sleeping beauty. Uh, sleeping beauty made 51 million. This one made, I wonder if this is over time. Hang on. Bear with me. Well, no, cause sleeping beauty made 606 uh, inflation adjust. No, hang on. Bear, bear with me. 101 Dalmatians has made 215 million from <laughs> the original 4 million investment. So I think that that's got to be over time and constant re-releases. Yeah, but, yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's, clearly this was a very very popular one, and the fact that it was one the first contemporary Disney one as well, and and everyone loves dogs. Not not exclusively, there are dog ones which haven't made as much money. <laughs> That is true, but Lady and the Tramp did well. Yep. 101 Dalmatians did well. Yep. Uh, though, I mean, this one is much more of 
it's much more of an adventure than yeah. uh, Lady and the Tramp is. So it's I, I really like it. This is one of my favorite ones, honestly, so far as well. It's also one of the first few Disney films with Easter eggs in it. If you watch carefully during the Twilight Bark scenes, who do you see, folks? Yeah. Let's see, Jacques, Jacques. Lady, yep. Peg. I'm sure that in on top of the car in silhouette is Tramp. Yes. Uh, yep, yep, yep. Uh, the Bulldog. Yep. I don't know what his name is. I think his name's just Bull. Bulldog. <laughs> Bull or something. Really, all Bulldogs should be called Winston. Uh, but if you think about it um (laughs) lady in the tramp was the original rude dog and the dweebs (laughs) you're gonna have to explain that one to me oh an animation aficionado not familiar with rude dog and the dweebs a bit young for rude dog and the dweebs yeah (laughs) is this a british thing or is this no no no, it was american we'll we'll, we'll, we'll tell you later Cool. <laughs> Tell me when I'm older. All right. <laughs> it's like it, it's Poochification. Kind of, that's all I need to say. Yes. Imagine if they early nineties. Oh, um, Top Cat. I'm I'm just looking Google up now. It's, okay, I've never seen this dog before, but I can already tell exactly everything that's wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, dudes, get rude. I, you know what? I am not wasting Disney hours talking no, about okay. Rude Dog and the Dweebs. That was a one-second right. throwaway line. But Got folks, it. Okay. check it out at some point. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, the the uh, it's not so much an Easter egg, but the um, the bits where Pongo's looking at uh, dogs and their owners, and they all look alike. That's a lovely little bit of as, oh. as a way to introduce the film. That's I cool. adore that. And you know what? That's a that's very Doctor Susie. Hmm. Oh, it is. Yeah. I love the whole Twilight Bark sequence too. Yeah, just conceptually. I'm sure that. Was, I mean, I haven't read the original book. I'm sure that's a key thing in the book as well. Oh, Sharon, what but, did they cut out of the original book? A rather oh, an important thing. The thing that I didn't like. Okay, yeah. The the one thing they changed that I really didn't like in the original story, the dog couple is called Pongo and Mrs. And a lot of people refer to her as Mrs. Pongo, but her name is Mrs. And what happens is she has her puppies and she has 15 puppies and it becomes apparent that she's not going to be able to feed 15 puppies on her own. This is a very big litter for dogs, particularly for Dalmatians. So they go to look for um, like a a wet nurse, a a, A a nursing dog uh, that they can uh, bring back to help her feed the puppies. Um, And they find Perdita... Um, they, what happens is, uh, Mr. Mr. Darling, he's never given the name of Roger in the book. They're just Mr. and Mrs. Darling. Um, he nearly runs over her with the car. She's, um, collapsed on the road and, um, they go to, uh, pick her up, realize she's a Dalmatian, then realize that she is a nursing mother. So they take her home and, and, um, revive her and give her food and look after her. And she becomes an integral part of their, um, their family. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's kind of like he, she and Mrs. end up uh, referring to themselves as sisters um, and they refer to the puppies as having two mothers, although Pongo specifically um, says he never thinks of himself as having two wives because it's not that it doesn't work like that. Um, but then Mrs. and Pongo go off to find the puppies. Perdita stays at home to look after the darlings because they are so upset about what's happened. Um, and she's a very much a homebody type, whereas Mrs. is much more adventurous. Um, so, and then some of the puppies that they find at, 
um, Cruellas, it turns out, are Perdita's puppies who had been sold away by her owner. And the reason that she was collapsed in the road was because she was looking for her puppies. Interesting. Okay. So they just effectively combined the characters then. Yeah. Basically, they make Mrs. and and Perdita one character because they obviously felt it would be a little bit too difficult to explain and it would probably have taken up too much time. And I can completely understand why they did away with it. But to me, that's an integral part of why I love that story is that it's this idea of the the steadily expanding family, that you start off with Pongo as this one unit on his own and gradually more dogs are added to it until you have this 101-sized family. And that is an interesting little twist finding, the finding some of her puppies in that house as well. Like That, that would have been nice. Again, I agree it may have been just too much to try to squeeze in. But uh, there's there's yeah. another two characters that they've combined into one as well. That um, the uh, the the maid that they have, the cook maid person, uh, who I think they refer to as nanny, don't they? Yeah. Um, well, what in in the book, um, basically, uh, Mrs. Darling's nanny is called Nanny Cook, and Mr. Darling's old nanny is called Nanny Butler, and they kind of when they meet. Uh, they jokingly say that because they now have this huge house to look after, they could do with actually being a cook and a butler. So they train as a cook and a butler. Um, And um, yeah, they've they've just kind of merged her into this sort of nice, sweet housekeeper type. Is Roger's actual surname Darling? Or were they just, was Dodie Smith doing what Disney did with Lady and the Tramp? Or was it the other way around? That Lady and the Tramp just happened to be that they call each other Darling all the time. So the dogs just assume that Jim Deere is called Jim Deere and his wife is called Darling. Um, I'm not sure, actually. They are referred to in the book as Mr. and Mrs. Darling. But as you say, because it's all from kind of from the dog's perspective, it could be that that's in their interpretation of it. Hmm. Interesting parallel. I also like the fact that the uh, the dogs exist in the same world, despite the fact that there's like 50-odd years of actual real-world continuity separates Lady and the Tramp in America from 101 Dalmatians in 60s Britain. And yet their descendants are now canine living in London. Yeah. yeah. It's nice, but it's worth it for the Easter eggs. <clears throat> and they're not mean to cats in this. There is a cat character, yeah. and he is a nice character. It's, it's almost double racism in Lady and the Tramp, because it's like they're cats and they're Chinese. Double shifty, untrustworthy types that we don't want anything to do with our proud American dogs. Oh, sorry, Siamese. What about The King and I? Ah, 1956. Siam wasn't big until one year later. Oh, but it was originally a musical in 1952. Oh, well. Okay, enough of this racism thing. (laughs) Okay, right, I'm actually... I agree thoroughly. Words to live by. (laughs) We'll have a Dalmatian plantation Where our population can roam In this new location Our whole aggregation Will love our plantation home
sword in the stone. Walt Disney Pictures presents a tale of great wonder, magic, and fantasy. The Sword in the Stone. You'll follow the adventures and thrills of the daring, brave young Arthur, a boy who wants to be king, and his guide, Merlin, the wise old wizard. And that is what I call a wizard blizzard. On their secret quest for the magical sword. With a little Disney magic, they'll go underwater. Merlin, am I a fish? Racing across the sky. And into a world of enchantment. What'll I do? She won't leave me alone. <laughs> That's a girl squirrel lad and, and a red-headed bat. With this pair, the surprises keep coming. <laughs> there, now you see. I'm not a squirrel. I'm a boy. You could. I tried to tell you. In their search for the sword, nothing will get in their way. And no one can stop them. Sorry, I've got to interject here. I know trailer bullshit. But that last sentence made no sense on any level. Okay, let's just do this blow by blow, piece by piece. A, in the search for the sword, they're not searching for the sword. They know where the sword is, or at least Merlin does. It's not, it doesn't figure into the film. The sword is an afterthought. B, nothing will get in their way. Plenty of stuff gets in their way. That's what happens on a hero's journey. Stuff gets in the way and nothing will stop them. If you say nothing will stop them before the film even starts, what's the point of even watching it? It's basically saying, look, they're going to win either way. You may as well watch or you may as well not. Which, by the way, is like the experience of watching The Sword in the Stone. Okay. On with the stupid trailer. Not even the wicked sorceress, Madame Mim, Merlin's biggest enemy. Hey, lad, did you know that I can be huge? Oh, it's a classic tale of chivalry, courage, and honor. With a fight to the end. For the magical sword that will turn young Arthur into King Arthur. Don't miss Walt Disney's The Sword in the Stone. Is it a tale of chivalry? I mean... Are they chivalrous to the squirrels? They don't eat them. They don't eat the squirrels. And there's good eating on a squirrel, especially in medieval times. I mean, what... Okay, let's look up chivalry, shall we? Sorry, I shouldn't be doing this, but just stupid trailers. Just the methods of training and standards of behavior for knights in the Middle Ages. That doesn't really tell us much. The code of chivalry emphasizes bravery, military skill, generosity and victory, piety, and courtesy to women. Um... Yeah, yeah, that's totally what this film's about. The Sword in the Stone, 1963. No one's favourite Disney. <laughs> I, I want to know about how they made The Sword in the Stone. There's no material on it at all. I went to the disc, there's nothing on it. There's, there's like, here's a sort of eight-minute thing from with the Sherman Brothers. I went to the Wikipedia page. How did this film happen? It went from um, plot to reception. There was no section on production. So did this film just, like, did Merlin wave his magic wand and the sword and the stone just happened to come into being? Yeah, it's really difficult to find any information about this, which is weird. And actually, it's several of these kind of in this 60s to 70s period. There's not as much, like, pr prior to this, all the films 
especially if you get them on DVD or Blu-ray, have loads of bonus materials about the history and the production and all that. And well, then they're very, very proud s- of their early output, aren't they? When right, and then it just suddenly kind of stops for some reason. Jungle Book's pretty lavish, but this is the last one before Walt, Walt dies. This is That's the first true. one before Walt dies when just suddenly they're like, um, yeah, this, this film happened. It honestly just feels like there might not be a whole lot remarkable about the production to discuss. Like it, it kind of feels to me that the next few Disney films after the 101 Dalmatians uh, transition with kind of the new technology and all that sort of settle into a style and don't really yeah. divert from it as artistically. Like, I don't know if that's just to be efficient and cost cutting or if they felt like they'd really kind of hit. This is the Disney look and yeah. then just kind of filtered everything through it. I don't know what motivated it. Else it's not a new story. It's T.H. White's um, version of uh, The King Arthur, or part of his uh, Once a Future King. So uh, it's they just adapted a book like they did with 101 Dimensions and The Jungle Book. Right, right. It, but it does feel like from here to Jungle Book, even on through like Aristocats and Robin Hood, like it kind of sticks into a very similar looking design. Like it, it doesn't deviate nearly so radically as you'll see between like... Uh, Peter Pan and Sleeping Beauty or the early storybook like Pinocchio. Like there's some there's a lot of distinct artistic design looks to a lot of the earlier Disney films. It kind of just settles into a rhythm yeah. right around this period. So there might just not have been a whole lot to discuss about the production of it. It was just it was the next one they made. <laughs> <laughs> and this doesn't really make it a bad one, but no one ever really talks about the sword and the stuff, you know. Well, the plot is kind of episodic in nature, just kind of a mm. bunch of individual little events that feel a bit separate. The sword it itself just, is kind of a footnote at the end. Oh yeah, he found a sword. The end. Yeah, yeah. Really, like, it's really the characters that carry it, the, and the songs that carry it. Yeah. Like, Merlin alone is probably enough to carry the movie, because he's just a super entertaining character. Yeah. Archimedes is a great little sidekick buddy. and there's, <laughs> I do love Archimedes. Archimedes. Another owl. Yeah. Archimedes wins the award for best prolonged mocking laugh ever recorded. <laughs> <laughs> you mean man will find one of those someday? If man were meant to fly, he'd have been born with wings. I am about to prove otherwise, Archimedes, if you care to watch. Yeah, she goes. No, 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 no. Man will fly, all right. Just like a rock. It would have worked if it, if, if it weren't for this infernal beard. someday i tell you yeah he makes uh, up for, for the patronizing one in uh, uh bambi yeah big, big mama is that her name or is that the one in uh oh that's in fox and the hound, fox and the hound uh, sorry yeah but uh yeah i mean you see why i get confused fun. with the amount of sheer amount of owls we've been bombarded <laughs> with more than harry potter uh, but yeah okay madam mim that whole sequence with her oh, is yeah. great fun with only a touch i have the power I find delight in the gruesome and grim. Oh, that's terrible. Thank you, my boy. But that's nothing, nothing for me. Oh, because I'm the magnificent, marvelous man, Madam Mim. You know what? I can even change size. 
I can be huge. Oh, fill the whole house. I can be teeny, small as a mouse. Black sorcery is my dish of tea. <laughs> it comes easy to me. Because I'm the magnificent, marvelous mad madam. Marvelous boy! Did you know that I can make myself uglier yet? Well, that would be some trick. Uh, uh, I mean, uh... Want to bet? Boo! Oh, you see? I win, I win! Aren't I, hideous boy? Perfectly revolting? Well, uh, yes, ma'am. But you ain't seen nothing yet. Watch this. I can be beautiful, lovely and fair. Silvery voice. Long purple hair, la 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 la, la 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 la, la 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 la, la But it's only skin deep for Zim Zabarin. Zim, I'm an ugly old creep, the magnificent, marvelous, mad 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 mad, mad Now, what do you think, boy? Who's the greatest? Yeah, when we were kids, I don't know if you got this, Dan, but um, uh, we had like um, British shows where they would just get clips of Disney films and just show you like four or five minutes of, uh, you know, just a, a, a fun sequence. And this would be on like every single one of them. They'd, they'd just show you this bit. And I don't know quite what they were doing, just sort of reminding you, hey, folks, Disney is still going. You might want to go to the cinema and see The Black Cauldron um, <laughs> for more stuff like this. You've not, have you not seen that yet? I still haven't known. I mean, oh, I'll, I'll see it soon. Cannot it's... wait for your thoughts on that one. Oh, um, yeah. What a treat but, I have in store for me. So, but, yeah, no, it's, it's a wonderful bit of, uh, of just sort of fun comic Disney business. It feels more like the ones that followed after Disney died. I, I was actually surprised that this happened before he went because it doesn't seem like his guiding hand is really in there. Nothing's there to really make this one special. Special. It seems to riff on Fantasia sometimes with the fact that it's a sorcerer making like all the mops and stuff do it on its own. It's also not a million miles away from Sleeping Beauty in terms of, and it's a, it's a rougher animation, but in terms of the actual landscape, not a million miles off. It feels a bit like Winnie the Pooh. Merlin's good fun. Yeah, Merlin is. I, mean, I suspect after Sleeping Beauty, and even somewhat during Sleeping Beauty, that Walt's involvement directly in the pictures was much more limited. I expect he stopped into the studio now and then and kind of gave some general creative direction to, to like, this is working, this is not working, I think you guys should go this direction and try this out. But I think, I think he was building parks, he was making movies, he was there's, he just could not be involved nearly to the same extent as well, he it, used to be. If saving Mr. Banks is to be believed, he devoted much of the 60s to trying to convince P.L. Travers that Mary Poppins was not the embodiment of Satan on Earth. So that's what he was doing while Sword in the Stone was getting made. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Getting... It, is fu- it is funny that like he worked, so- he sunk so much money and wanted so much for Sleeping Beauty to be his masterpiece. I really feel like Mary Poppins was what actually ended up being. We saw it earlier today. It's wonderful isn't it it is it is awesome I we can't really talk about it here dan i'm sorry but we no, will be fine. doing no, a just... show on mary poppins fantastic but yeah I, i've not seen saving mrs banks yet sorry i've not seen either. saving mr banks yet uh but um it's it's kind of depressing knowing that uh travers really you know really ended up not liking the film and it's kind of like a uh feeling yeah like, like, i mean 
she can be wrong. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's but yeah. Although interestingly, anyway. there's a bit in the uh, trailer where um, uh, she says "responsible." Yeah, it's a new word. We made it up. Well, unmake it. So it seems like when Dawes Senior says "superfetish," there's no such word. They're having a dig at her there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are this man. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I, I was supposed to be talking about Sword in the Stone. Of course, um, yeah. But that's the thing. Sword in the Stone makes you wander off and make a cup of tea. It kind of does. I mean, it's fun, but it does just feel like it's a film that is very easy to cut five or six minutes out of from a sequence mm. and play it as its own independent thing. It's just, it is very episodic in nature, and so there's not a really strong plot like motivate or character motivation really driving you through like i like the the fact that the characters like a lot of the themes of the movie are like trying to encourage intelligence and it's like we're in an era where everyone where everyone is just it's all about strength and brawn and bully and just and it's all about stories yeah (laughs) and merlin is just this nerd who's trying to who Sees, sees that this kid is going to be important and is trying to communicate to him how important intelligence and learning is. That is and true, actually. It's quite ahead of its time, if you think about it. It's, it's, it's very much sort of this, this little geek rising up and beating down. Well, not, not so much beating all the jocks, but just uh, he's the right man for the job when all the other jocks aren't. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily paint it as, like, it doesn't paint Merlin as perfect in that. Like, Merlin's kind of a little overbearing with that. And as mm. soon as Wart starts kind of starts expressing that, look, I kind of like this stuff. I'm like, I'm excited to be a squire of Merlin throws a hissy fit and, yeah. fl- and flies away. But I don't know. There are, but there are bits and pieces that I like of this movie, but it does just, it doesn't really propel you through it. Yeah. It's just kind of dull. Also, he's the right man for the job because his dad was the King. No other goddamn reason. If I'm going to hold Cinderella to account in that same way, that I, basically it doesn't matter how much Merlin teaches Arthur, it's just ammunition to 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 uh, add to his wisdom as a king later. But he's born to be king. It's not about his actual achievements and his abilities. It's he's gonna be. But if you look at, um, at how that kind of comes across uh, in in the original story, and I'm filtering this myself through several other interpretations of it because I've never read the original book, I will admit that. Um, <laughs> I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. <laughs> you and all your silly English niggets. Possibly not that one. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, no, no. I mean, the, the idea that, um, that Merlin is... Um, he knows perfectly well that Arthur is going to go on to become the king. What he's trying to do is influence the direction that the kingdom goes in by trying to get some appreciation for um, diplomacy and intelligence and negotiation rather than just war, war, swords, swords um, into the the mm. person who will be the monarch, um, the boy who would be king. Um would have been a better way of saying that. <laughs> um, the person who will be the monarch just rolls yeah. up. <laughs> but it doesn't exclude women, which is good. Well, that's that's true. Or Although cats. this film mostly does. Um, <laughs> apart from Mim and the overly amorous squirrels. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's possibly one of the reasons why it didn't grab me quite as much as it could have done um just given how much i love uh, medieval fantasy and and um english or british mythology but then 
Lord of the Rings had kind of taken over from Arthur as being the legend du jour yeah. around this time. So, well, before this time. So maybe Arthur and, and the, the knights just weren't that cool anymore. Yeah. There is a, a little bit of business that the Sherman Brothers mentions about all the knights in the tournament, like smashing each other's brains out for the uh, the white tree on a blue background, or is it a blue tree on a white background, which is a little bit close to Lord of the Rings, which came out nine years earlier. <laughs> Um, but obviously, it's the heraldry of Lord of the Rings is just one tiny, tiny part of it. Yeah. I do really like the the wizard duel, though. Oh yeah, that's great. Him. That's yeah. fantastic. It's and fun. again, a little bit Doctor Susie in in terms of the beasts that they turn themselves into and how they look. The fact that they all look like themselves in some way. All of Merlin's creatures are blue and wearing glasses. Yeah, and you, you, there's never any doubt that that goat is Merlin. Yeah. You never think to yourself, wow, that's obviously not him. It reminds me a bit of that, uh, The Emperor's New Groove, again, where they keep turning into different animals. Yes. There's, there's a lot in I've this. I've been turned into a cow. Can I go home? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there's a lot in this one where I was kind of like, oh, somebody who made a future Disney film saw this and they've nicked that bit and yeah. they like that bit. And there's one point where Merlin almost says, indoor plumbing. It's, it's gonna, gonna be big. Um, it's also uh, it's the opposite of cloudy with a chance of meatballs. This presents you with magic, but then has Merlin trying to reel off physics to you and say, "Okay, well, it's all magic, but here's actually how the real world works," and then trying to sort of tell you this scientific theorem and sort of teach stuff to Arthur that he really can barely comprehend. Cloudy with a chance of meatballs suggests it's really really cool to be scientists, and then delivers you magic, burgers from the sky, hot. Perfectly cooked, perfectly formed burgers from the clouds. But I love the Lego movie, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, Dan, I don't think I've really told you about the Lego movie. Did you like it? I love the Lego movie. Cool. Gonzo coming I, soon. I adore it. My <laughs> God, did I love that thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, back to, to Sword in the Stone. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. We can't even focus long enough to talk about it. It's, it's, not a, it's not a bad film at all. It is quite no, a good film to stick on in the background. But if, if you're going to sit down and watch it, your mind's going to wander. It's maybe it's, it's no one's favorite Disney movie. You're you're right, yeah. but it's it's not bad. There'll be one person who says, "Excuse me, it's my favorite Disney movie," <laughs> but you're the exception that proves the rule. Good. Tell us why. <laughs> yeah, tell us. Why. It's not, again, it's not a bad film. It's just um, there's so many others that really achieve something. It may in part be because it doesn't really have a solid narrative line. Yeah. There's not something that's that your your characters are trying to work towards that you're you're behind them with. You know that at the end of this, Arthur is going to pull the sword out of the stone and become king. <laughs> to the point where they're just like, oh yeah, and he did that as well. It, it, it is literally there are moments in this where it just feels like they're killing time until Arthur gets to the square and pulls the sword out of the stone. Oh, do you know what I'd like though? If they adapt the other books in the series in this same animation style like they did with Winnie the Pooh? Yes. An older Arthur, an older Merlin, That's less wacky. Yeah. Not from a child's point of view. I don't know. Probably not going to happen. 
very unlikely. Again, nobody's asking for it. It's not going to happen. Let me show you. The person who does, does tell us this is actually my favorite, it's going to be for personal reasons because they saw it with their mum and it became a really special afternoon or something like that. It won't very cause it achieves something that nobody else did. Actually, yes. One of my favorite um, adaptations of the, uh, the Arthurian legends is the uh, British comic Camelot 3000. And I tried to read that again recently. Not so good. And it, it really doesn't hold up. I mean, it's... No it, there are elements of it that are still really really great and a lot of the things that i loved about it then i love about it now but i'm just looking at the costume design and going oh my god what were you on so in terms of how did this advance disney it didn't it just it just stopped them from going bankrupt well it was was a modest success at best it's certainly not as successful as dalmatians and which was I think a little worrisome for people because they were already being really efficient with this production, yeah. And the smaller numbers started kind of bringing those old Sleeping Beauty worries back. Like, all right, is this actually going to be a sustainable thing to keep doing? And the, fortunately, the following film would kind of table that discussion for a while. I also noticed there's a kind of a fascination in on the Disney part around this period in the British. Dalmatians, British. Sword in the Stone, British. Jungle Book, a lot of British voices. Written by Rudyard Kipling, an English author. T.H. White, author of The Sword in the Stone, English author. 101 Dalmatians, Dodie Smith, English author. Mary Poppins, P.L. Travers, Australian author, emigrated to England, lived there for the rest of her life. Winnie the Pooh, A.A. Milne, English author. Bedknobs and Broomsticks, written by Mary Norton, English author. The Rescuers, written by Marjorie Sharp, English author. Robin Hood, England's greatest folktale, apart from possibly King Arthur. The Aristocats, French. (laughs) Peter Pan, British. Alice in Wonderland, British. Mary Poppins, as British as it gets. Bedknobs and Broomsticks, British. I mean, I don't want to attribute this entirely to the Beatles, but like, it feels like they're probably bad. Hold back with your Beatlemania, okay? It's coming, it's coming. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, the Beatles weren't around when Alice in Wonderland. Well, they were technically, but they weren't (laughs) doing their thing yet. But um, that one's one's already set. I mean, I guess a lot of these are already set, but I don't Uh, know what I'm talking about, man. I like, see, uh, um, 101 Dalmatians, because of its style, actually seems more American to me. I have to remind myself it's in Britain because it just it's because it, it looks like peanuts. It's simply because it's just it's a very distinctive '60s like pre Woodstock kind of you know that era pre like everybody like like just on the cusp still of the '50s, but like Catch Me If You Can era. Anyway, it's it's, it's interesting stuff. Oh, f- I just broke my rule, didn't I? <laughs> Look at that. It's easy, though, isn't it? It is. Higgetus, figgetus, zambakazing. I want your attention, everything. We're packing to leave. Come on, let's go. No, no, not you. Books are always first, you know. Hockety, pockety, wockety, whack. Abracadabra, dabra, knack. Shrinking size, very small. We've got to save enough room for all. Figgitus, 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 more. Prestidigitorium. Cicero, you belong in the seas. Alphabetical order, please. Alakafez, Benakazez, Malakazez, Maripides. Diminish, diminish, dictionary. That word's in your vocabulary. Hockety, pockety, wockety, whack. That's the way we've got to pack. Figgitus, 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 bum, higgitus, figgitus, figgitus. Stop, stop, stop!
Now, see here, sugar bowl, you're getting too rough. Poor old tea set's cracked enough. <gasps> oh, well, all right. Uh, let's uh, start again. Uh, 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 oh, where was I, boy? Oh, hockety pockety. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Hockety pockety, wockety whack, odds and ends and brick and brack. Higgity spiggity spiggity spum, prestidigitonium. Higgity spiggity spiggity spum, prestidigitonium. Hurry up there, hurry up, hurry up. <laughs> oh, this is the best part. <laughs> Higgity spiggity spiggity spum, prestidigitonium. Higgity spiggity spiggity spum, prestidigitonium. <laughs> Okay, now before we get into this version of The Jungle Book, it's important to remember that this session was recorded before I had written one word of Tiger's Eye. See, I love The Jungle Book before, as you're about to hear, but now it has even more special meaning, and I think a lot of that's going to come out in the live-action Jungle Book review coming very soon. So just bear that in mind, and if you're a Jungle Book fan and haven't yet listened to Tiger's Eye, now might be the time. It's been a long time in coming, but now, after four years, the announcement can be made. Walt Disney's most entertaining triumph in the art of animation is here. Dooby 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 dee doo. Well, it's a dooby doo. Yes, it's a dooby doo. Well, now, <laughs> what have we here? It's Walt Disney's The Jungle Book. Yes, The Jungle Book, a new departure in contemporary entertainment. Kid, we've got to get to a tree. This calls for some big scratching. You're lots of fun, Baloo. A boisterous musical comedy version of Rudyard Kipling's familiar stories about the boy Mowgli and his encounters with human nature in the jungle. There's the devious Ka and the envious Louie, King of the Apes, the Dawn Patrol. Oh, the aim of our patrol. Rather droll. And the pompous Colonel Hutty. A dusty muzzle. Soldier, that haircut is not regulation. Rather on the gaudy side, don't you think? There, that's better. Then there's the jungle's fair weather friends. We've never met an animal we didn't like. <laughs> and the treacherous Sher Khan. Boo! Let's get out of Run, friend, run! <laughs> A man-cub in the jungle, and all he has on his side are two real friends, the man-cub's jungle guardians. Oh, no! Baloo! Let go! Are you kidding? There's teeth in the other end. Baloo and Bagheera, two wonderful characters destined to become comedy immortals. Fire? So that's what that scoundrel's after. Yeah. Well, man, what a beat. Will you stop that silly beat business and listen? This will take brains, not brawn. You better believe it, and I'm loaded with both. Hey! There's a button on it. In 
30 years, there's never been a more entertaining achievement in the art of animation. Can learn to be like someone like you. One more time. Yeah, can learn to be like someone like me. So, The Jungle Book, 1967. The last one that was in production while Walt Disney was still alive. He, in fact, died nearly a year before it came out. This took a long time to make, as did most of them. And um, a good one to end on, I think. Sad that he yeah. didn't see it play out and didn't get to actually see people people really take to this style and love it but it, there's so much to love about this film this was another one that wasn't one that i enjoyed as much as a kid or it, i didn't remember it being one of my favorites but yeah going back to it it really like the characters are all great so, like baloo and bagheera are an awesome little duo yeah yeah Sher khan is amazing both like as a character voice the animation craft all that I love the fact that everyone's terrified of him, which already builds him up as a character. And then when he actually turns up and controls the situation in a way that's effortless and at the same time is really, really funny. You can see how that inspired Scar quite so much. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Sterling Holloway is back with Ka. With mm. a, it's just a fun movie. All around, just solid film, really infectiously catchy songs. I mean, just it's Sherman Brothers, so they're all like that, but still really catchy music and the great cuddly wonderful impossible not to love Phil Harris as Baloo the Bear yeah one of three pretty much identical roles he did yes Uh, he's also Thomas O'Malley in the Aristocats and uh, Little John in Robin Hood it's partly it's identical because he went off script you know he started reading the lines that were originally written and then was like nah this isn't can I do Phil Harris (laughs) <laughs> but I want to no, hear you this ain't, this ain't the way I'd talk. You gotta say, no, little buddy, you're gonna get your roof blown off. <laughs> Hang on, that's a that little bit kind of not... like Jack Nicholson. <laughs> a little bit, but that's actually not too bad. I'd need to smoke several cigars before I sound even vaguely like him. I'm gone, man. Solid gone. Uh, not bad. He's not bad. Oh, just a lovely, lovely guy. I think Jungle Book's one of those ones that you can watch it uh, at whatever age you are and like Lyra we've been watching them all all the way through and Lyra has loved most of them but she really loves the Jungle Book because it's just so lively and heartfelt and it's about little connections between them as well so um, the way Mowgli interplays with Bagheera doesn't really work out but you can see that this kind of the, the fussiness going on there he's a bit of a C-3PO type character but then with Baloo, the, the, the sense of connection between the two of them is so strong, they pretty much had to manufacture an ending to get to tear Mowgli away from him. Because um, this is adapted very loosely from a series of short stories that sort of uh, uh, episodically make up the Jungle Book. But the, the, the whole chill I'm grown thing. Um, I suppose this sort of comes under stuff that sucks. Sharon, do you want to go ahead and tell us why this is so odious a sequence? Um, uh, First of all, the song is entirely based around um, a a repetition of traditional 
um, petitioned out gender roles, which this girl apparently is intent on replicating. Um, so I have a problem with that. Uh, and it almost seems, coming as it does in 1967, it almost seems like a little bit of a possible anti-feminist backlash. But maybe I'm reading too much into that. No, no, ladies, you must go and fetch the water. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can't see what gesture I'm making right now, but it's not <laughs> Disney-appropriate. Um, but the fact that um, uh, Mowgli has had this whole... The, the jungle that he's grown up with, the wolves who are essentially his parents, uh, Bagheera, who he's developed this um, kind of mentor relationship with, and Baloo, who is his his friend, even down to Khan, Shere Khan, who are his, his antagonists and have, have you know gone out of their way to make his life miserable. This is his life. This is everything he knows. Um, and... If you if you look at something like Tarzan, who belongs in the jungle and really the, the connections that he makes with the people there, albeit that the people all have fur and tails, etc., that's what's important. That's what makes him who he is as a man, is the, the uh, interactions that he has uh, with the, the characters who make up his, his world. This whole ending hinges on the idea that Mowgli needs to be with his kind. Like with like. And he's pulled there by the urge of his own testosterone. <laughs> and it just seems a little bit... I don't know, like it was only there because they couldn't think of any other way to end it. And then we watched the making of material and, they, and it's like, only oh, there because they couldn't think of any other way to end it. And I'd never really thought about it before until they even admitted, and it is a bit creepy that this little girl is seducing him, but she is. <laughs> Father's hunting in the forest. Mother's cooking in the Go to fetch the water till the day that I am grown. Till I'm grown, till I'm grown. I must go to fetch the water till the day that I am grown. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't like ruin the end of the jungle book. In fact, I kind of find it like a little bit like sheepish and silly and, and, and laughable that these were the gender roles they were doling out at this time yeah I've had a hard time getting like I I can't get too mad at it but I don't really love it either as an ending it's it's fine I, I don't know I, I would not like seeing it now that's for sure well yeah if, if this was in a modern day film you'd be, people would be up Twitter would be on yeah fire. <laughs> Well, at least my yeah. fate would be. Anyway. Excuse me. This is especially since this is the first female that's turned up in the film, isn't it? Um. Oh wait. Other, oh, than, okay, other than the mother wolf. There's the mother wolf and. Oh, but I didn't even remember oh, that. Oh no 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 no. There's um. There's Colonel Hathi's wife. Oh uh, yes. Ah, you know Winifred is a strong character. 
she in fact makes um, uh, Hathi look like a, 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 a bumbling fool, which is a great And I, I do like the fact that ostensibly, although she is basically set up as, as a mother, and, you know, she's the mother of the little baby elephant, she says, if you don't sort this out, I'm taking over leadership. <laughs> <laughs> and because these elephants represent colonial Britain at that point, the empire, they're really saying the British empire, the backbone of it is actually a strong mother figure. Well, of course, yeah, Victoria. Exactly. Have existed without her. Yeah, so uh, that that actually goes some way to sort of redressing this rather cheapish balance at the end. But then again, how do you end the Jungle Book? What's better than Baloo? I don't know. Frankly, maybe just Mowgli saying, "Look, I got fire. I can be king of this jungle." about it and I mean I, I don't know how the, the original Jungle Book ends but they, they were talking about having to find some way for Mowgli to get back to the village so I'm assuming that's well, no, the that's the, 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 that's the first decides to return it's, to it's a series of vignettes the first vignette is Mowgli gets taken to the man village it's done then they go back and get Mowgli later but I mean this yep. is a quest this is the this is the first Disney film with a a straightforward quest at, given at the beginning. 101 Dalmatians, it develops somewhere in the middle. Um, and uh, there are a couple of other ones, which are, uh, Pinocchio goes on a quest. Again, somewhere in the middle. In this one, it is a straightforward, I will take the man cub to the man village. That, there's a really kind of symbolic, kind of wonderful thing going on there. And the various people that get met along the way that will help or hinder them in this quest. I think, uh, what springs to mind would probably have been far too complicated for what they were actually trying to do with this but something along the lines of uh, King Louis having realised that he's not going to get the secret of fire from Mowgli uh, decides to invade the man village to try and get it from there. And Mowgli, because he knows the jungle, decides to go and join the man village so that he can protect them from Louis and his rapacious apes. <laughs> Rapacious apes. That's our monkeys cover band. Thank you. <laughs> also, it's possibly just because we're reviewing so much Planet of the Apes right now. Yeah, probably. <laughs> King Louis is Caesar. <laughs> He's got this monkey tribe living in the woods. He wants man's red fire, possibly so he can make his own shotguns. Okay, that gives you an idea as to the recording date. We must have reviewed these at the exact same time as we were doing the Planet of the Apes film, so what, summer 2014. Oof, it has been a while. Okay, in the meantime, not one but two Jungle Book live-action films were put into production. One, the Disney one coming out in the next couple of weeks. The other, Jungle Book Origins, put together by Andy Serkis and his team. So, I mean, if you love The Jungle Book, and I do, you are spoiled for choice right now. And there is so much performance capture animal action in the works. Man, that song is catchy. Yeah. I want to be like you and The Bear Necessities. Uh, originally, Walt wanted The Bear Necessities cut. Madness. Thank God they stuck to their guns and said, no, Walt, you're out of your mind. This one we keep. Yeah, there, there were originally different songs being written by a different songwriter at the time. and. Yeah. Uh, well, and he ended up leaving. Walt wanted to, to drop all those songs, but everyone, like Bare Necessities in particular, everyone at the studio loved. So they they convinced him. I love the um, the flute music in this at the beginning. That do 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 
in the in the opening. It's it's transportive, yeah. and. Uh, one of the things I love of this period of Disney is you'll notice I'm not, you're not getting too much enthusiasm from me in terms of story and characters and stuff. I Obviously, I like Dumbo. The thing I love about all these Disneys that we've said so far, apart from the wartime ones, and even some of them, actually, the backgrounds. They're absolutely beautiful. The actual the, the, the worlds that have been designed and that they're just the, – the fact that it's – Disney didn't stick to one style and that – yeah, every, People who aren't fans of Disney tend to be very dismissive of it and just like, you know, just repetitions on a theme over and over again. That may be true, but when you get down to the detail, they're so different along the way and every single one is distinct except the sword and the stone. Um, but <laughs> not every single one is distinct. A couple of them are kind of uh, similar, especially around this period, but um, they go out of their way to create worlds that feel very um, striking and uh, and for the characters to really be sold in it's it's like cosplay if you look at someone's cosplay and they're just standing in front of like a pie shop and, it, and they, they shouldn't be wearing uh, an anime costume in front of a pie shop it doesn't work at all you put them in the right background it sells that cosplay perfectly so you cannot overemphasize how important these backgrounds were and the jungle books are no exception yeah, they're really beautiful. Mm. Just lovely. I mean, Disney, it's hard to think of a bad-looking Disney film in general. Some are obviously, like, landmark achievements of just craft, but... And, yeah, Jungle Book is definitely... Just this jungle looks so pretty. It's yeah, so many beautiful little shots. Oh, one bit about The Sword and the Stone that I've remembered, actually, that I, I quite like is how broken off and kind of sad the uh, the squirrel story is that little girl squirrel sort of uh, uh, looking after the suddenly turned into a human Arthur and she's heartbroken and they don't then fix her up with another squirrel it just leaves her and she's sniffing and crying on her she goes into her little squirrel hole and cries and that's it yeah and she writes in her diary and and, and moves on with her squirrel she life. She does a little voodoo doll of Arthur and sticks pins in him. Yeah. <laughs> My friends need to be punished. Um, <laughs> but no, it's 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 a nice little. It's not neatly tied up. I like that. No, it's not tied up neatly in the way that that the the big Bertha squirrel who goes after Merlin goes in a comedy way. Yeah, she goes to anger. The other one's yeah. just sad, and there's not a quick fix for sad. Yeah. But, uh, and I wonder if that barracuda that comes after Arthur is the one that got Nemo's mum. <laughs> Probably not. I think it's <laughs> be a very old fish. And that's, yeah, and also that's a cold water lake fish, not a tropical oh, Australian fish. Not fresh water. But, <laughs> I mean, I think I think just to, to jump back to the Jungle Book, one of the things that I really love about it is is the music. So it is it's kind of ironic that it, that was something that Walt wanted to um, to drop parts of I, I think I might be thinking this about the wrong film but didn't he want them to be um, written by known uh, pop music writers of the oh, time yeah. the he wanted one. it to be music that would be instantly popular with the no, masses hang on. no no it's the other way around they were going to do a Beatles song that sounded like early Beatles when the uh, Beatles uh, turned up. and, and right, Walt was the one who you. actually said nah that's gonna date do it barbershop style <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know what's coming back in? Barbershop. <laughs> but the the incidental music in Jungle Book, I love this. I uh, much though the I will go to fetch the water song 
annoys me so much when she puts the lyrics to it. Mm. I do quite like the fact that as they're traveling through the jungle, every time they try, because these things happen to sort of knock Mowgli off the path and this, uh, you know, progressing towards his destiny of going back to the man village. Every time Bagheera says, right, okay, back on the path, we're going back towards the man village. You get these little strains of that particular tune coming through. And then Baloo has his own little, um, you know, background music that tells you that Baloo is here and Car has his the, the, the little strains of um, go to sleep and trust in me and um, you know it's like the, a belly the, dancing song yeah. exactly and that turns up every time he's on screen and even sometimes when he's not on screen but you can hear the music so you know Carl's coming around the corner any minute it's it's called a light motif it's a, it's a musical theme that basically sets the scene for a specific character and uh, they had to sow that seed for Mowgli so that at the end when he goes to fetch the water you know that he was heading there all along and he's been following his destiny as such or or at least following where he's supposed to be I don't know I I would have liked you know what I would actually have liked to see Mowgli saving somebody uh, in, in a way that actually he was able to do using his jungle skills but at the same time going actually this I can be of use here and um this is where I want to be to uh, an actual action rather than just what appears to be hormones mm. but then that kind of would just be Tarzan and I, you could make an Nothing argument with for him I, I know but they did Tarzan although not yeah, too later. years later <laughs> and riffing on this well yes indeed but I, I do quite like the fact that he does sort of if you think about it save both Baloo and Bagheera from themselves by providing them with this sort of child figure that they have to take care of but in very specific ways. Bagheera has to loosen up and um, you know, have a little fun and Baloo has to get some responsibility and actually, you know, do something constructive. Yeah. I'm kind of torn on Mowgli because he is an annoying little gobshite but at the same time he also wants to take control of his own destiny and doesn't want to be um, sh- you know, put a- moved around by other people. So really when it comes down to it, he decides to go. Yeah, I and mean, when Shere Khan gives him a chance to run, he just finds a stick. Yeah, he's a brave little guy as well. Especially when, when Shere Khan jumps and roars, and Mowgli's like, whoa, I've bitten off more than I can chew here. And then basically, had Baloo not shown up, he'd have been a tiger toothpick. He would. I feel so bad for Shere Khan in that scene where he gets the fire tied to his tail. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I like Shere Khan. He's my favorite yeah. character in this, except for Baloo. Um, but... but uh, I can understand, well, the tiger is my favorite animal and my spirit animal if I have one. Uh, and so I can understand what it feels like to be the lone hunter and to be, to have to interact with Carr and to have to interact with the vultures. And there's this great bit of animation when he, uh, when he, when he butts in on their song and goes, that's what friends are. And then he glares at them while he's going, in a kind of get out of here way. What do you think of the Beetle Vultures? They're fine. They're fun. Excluding John, whom we shall not speak of for saying the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. How dare he? I mean, they, I mean, they would have been in it, theoretically, if, uh, I mean... Basically, had he if, not said that, I mean, the, the had, Beatles... Or had John, had John not straight up said he didn't... I mean, it, as it, the rumor goes, John also said, it's like, eh, I don't want to be in that. I don't want so, to be in this one. It, it, that's how he said it. I won't and, even be in Yellow Submarine. I'm certainly not going to be in some Disney shit. Yeah, yeah, it's just, there's like, they don't want to be in... 
didn't want to be in some cartoon or whatever a few years before they did Yellow Submarine. So they didn't do Yellow Submarine. That oh, was that's a good news. point, actually. Yeah. Someone else did it. They turned but up at still. the very end. Well, yeah. they had so much. They were do- they were making Sergeant Peppers give them a break. No, that's fine. I I don't begrudge <laughs> okay. them for not fine. making a little. You were making cameo three of the Book. best albums ever made. Okay, don't be in Jungle Book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't feel like it wouldn't have significantly made Jungle Book. And, an even better movie just because they showed up for a song for some yeah. reason. So it's honestly I, probably better they don't. That would have really dated it in a weird way. It would actually. It would have been like the monkeys showing up to play monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> they missed a the trick there, didn't they? <laughs> We're your friends. We're your friends. We're your friends to the bitter end. The bitter end. When you When you are down, when you are down, and when you're outside looking in, who's there to open the door? That's what friends are for. Speaking of the music in the film just a little bit of trivia something i never ever caught before watching these movies in order and i don't didn't see it discussed much did you guys ever pick out or notice the george bruns sad music cue uh, is it in all of them it is in at least five films oh, right um there's you hum it? there's this sad violin sort of like sort of thing that they <laughs> That is in, hang on, I think it's in Sleeping Beauty, I think it's in 101 Dalmatians, it's in Sword in the Stone, it's in Jungle Book, it's, uh, is it an Aristocats? It might be an Aristocats. It is in, it's in Jungle Book twice. It's basically, and it's a nice little piece of music, and it fits pretty well in each time. I don't know if it was just something where, like, he liked it so much, it was just like, it's like a, a chef who just has his favorite ingredient who feels like it needs to be in everything, or... I don't know what reason he had for it, but it's something I'd never caught before, which is now really stood out to me. Yeah, there's just like, there it is again. It's (laughs) an earworm, then. He's doing it again. Yeah. George Brunstad music. will cease to resist 
trust in me and just in me. I mentioned Bill Pete for the 101 Dalmatians thing before. He he pretty much made the, the whole film. If you go back to his original storyboards, it, it runs so close uh, to that. And this is like work that 50 odd people were doing back in the day when Disney was in its golden age. So that's an incredible workload to, to put on one guy. And the, the fact that he didn't just allow this to just devolve into to a complete mess by the end is, uh, is testament to what a hardworking kind of guy he actually was. And actually, the Xeroxing technique, while it wasn't as beautiful as Ink and Paint, there's something not dissimilar to claymation about it, uh, insofar as you can see, if you watch with your animator eye, you can see little occasional scratches and, like, uh, construction lines and, like, little, like, bits, almost mistakes, just there, even if they've cleaned them up on, on Blu-ray and DVD, which make it feel more like it's been handmade. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does, I, and I, which I like. I'm, I'm sure some people, like, there is definitely some incredible craft to the cleanliness and the, the just the precise, like, hand-colored line work of the ink and paint era. Like, I, I love yeah. that, too. But just as an animator, I love getting to, I really feel like I'm watching a drawing moving around. Yeah, which is, yeah, and it's just really. I get. To, I feel like I can appreciate it even more now since there's not been. It's not been. There's not been an additional step in between that drawing getting made and me seeing it. Yeah, I mean, it's the difference between something being lavish and exquisite and something being handmade and that you can see has had very hard work put into it, as well. But but is is more noticeably uh, a bit more rough and ready about. Yeah. about the, the but I I really love that too. I I. I like not feeling like somebody just made a magic, uh, waved a magic wand and created this yeah. immaculate piece of artwork. That it shows the humanity in involved in it. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a, it's a damn shame that uh, that Walt really couldn't come to terms with it before he was. He just he suddenly died. He um uh, he, he went to the doctors with a, a complaint in his neck. He thought it might be an old polo injury or something, and then within just a few days, it was like, nope, you got cancer, lung cancer. And then he came back to the studio for like, once, visited the folks, you know, said his goodbyes, and he never said goodbye. He just said, see you next week, and then went home, and then he was dead. This amazing person who had affected so many lives, this titan of industry, this incredibly respected. <laughs> How does one say this without being either cruelly bumlick or being too dismissive? I mean, I don't think amazing is too much, like, because amazing is, what he'd achieved was pretty incredible with this like all of these films are the result of his like of just his vision for the most part like almost exactly 30 years of 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 ups and downs but the ups were incredibly high yeah he's built a company that is still one of the biggest in the world yeah and a a man of just um, immense vision he um i suppose one of the reasons that he he may not have been particularly fantastic socially is that with his with your brain in the future all the time you tend not to quite notice the little things quite so much so he was kind of like um howard hughes or tony stark 
he was a futurist and uh, somebody if you've ever actually sat and watched him talk about Epcot he's got these crazy dreams for the future of, of what could be and like a uh, part of Tom- Tomorrowland was modeled around what the world would look like in 1986 you know with all our rocket ships we had back then um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah it, it, it's it's ex- okay right this is not too much hyperbole he was a fairly extraordinary fellow that is true yeah yeah, and the film and Jungle Book itself was a huge success at the box office. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the fact that Walt had passed and that this was the last one he had a hand in yeah. helped. I'm sure that did definitely drive a lot more people to go see the last re- real Disney film. But uh, I mean, it was a it was a strong film in its own right. It is still beloved now. Yeah, it's it's one of the favorites that people sort of harken back to. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. I mean the bare necessities are Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. The bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to you. And finally... The Aristocrats. Cats! Walt Disney Pictures presents a classic case of catnapping. They're gone! That's terrible. What's gonna happen to us? The culprit is on the loose. He's the catnapper. The cats are on the run. Everybody out of here fast. But help is on the way. Charge! It's adventure. Surprises. Romance. Sissy stuff. And music. This is outrageous. It's crazy. It's scandalous. But most of all, it's quiet. It's delightful Disney fun. It's Walt Disney's most cataclysmic comedy ever. The Aristocats. Meow. So let's start with, naturellement, the Aristocats. Um, we'll let Dan speak, because he's very good at sounding enthusiastic about things, especially things that I don't like. So, Dan... <laughs> What's uh, what struck you as particularly uh, an achievement about the Aristocats beyond simply uh, uh, proving that they could still make movies after Walt? Well, really, I think that is the probably the biggest triumph of the whole movie. It's that they managed to hold everything together with Walt gone and still probably for the most part produce something that at least feels very similar to what they would have with Walt still there. And obviously Walt had been around very early on in the preliminary story stages for this movie, back when it was 
a really different kind of movie. It was apparently originally going to be a live action thing, and uh, uh, it was going to be. How a would they get the cats to do the things they needed them to do, or were they going to be kids? That's an excellent question. Um, they might have. It might have been something kind of in the vein of like Roger that darn cat or Homeward Bound or one of those other kind of like uh, Milo and Otis more like a. Uh, who knows? I mean, it, it didn't ever come to fruition, obviously. But okay. uh, I think his version was going to be a lot more emotionally kind of tugging, a little bit less lighthearted, probably more like Lady and the Tramp than 101 gotcha. Dalmatians. More I guess. of a sense of peril. A little bit, yeah. Because if there's anything this movie is lacking, it is a sense of peril. Oh, yes. Uh, there is no still... age that you can show this to a child where they will be upset. <laughs> it is very true. It it still looks very nice. That that's, can be said of almost every Disney film. It looks very nice. The background paintings are beautiful. The animation is lovely. And this film was going to be super important for them either way. Because, yeah. I mean... Every, I mean as I've said before, after Sleeping Beauty, there's always that lingering question kind of circling around the Disney company. Do we keep the animation department around? Mm. And especially with Walt gone, that was that question was being asked louder and louder. Fortunately, Jungle Book was a big success, which really delayed that discussion. But still, a lot was riding on Aristocats doing well. Yeah. And ultimately, I, I mean, I like Napoleon and Lafayette's little slapstick sequences chasing... Edgar the Butler around those are I mean they're just basic kind of a Looney Tunes ish comedy but they're still fun and well done and they're you get some laughs lots of fun gags now you go for the tires and I'll go right for the seat of the problem how come you always grab a tender part for yourself because <laughs> I outrank you that's why now stop beating your gums and sound the attack <laughs> no, that's mess call <laughs> Made a mess of it, huh? You can be replaced, you know. Okay, let's charge. <coughs> Wait a minute. I'm the leader. I'm the one that says when we go. Here we go. Charge! And all the characters are, like, cute, enjoyable, nice. Like, none of them are grating or irritating or anything. It's very, I don't know, it's just very light. It's very kind of insubstantial. I don't know. I think the, the swans or the geese or whatever they are, the duck twins, they are grating for me. My God. I'll, I'll give you that one. I'd forgotten about them. <laughs> uh, but all right, our main characters Pair are... of enablers, both of them. <laughs> I mean, still, we still got... Drunk is so cute. Dreadful. Being British, I would have preferred Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry! <laughs> Oh, 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 Uncle Walter, you're just too much. You mean he's had too much? Abigail, Abigail, Abigail. Yes, we best get Uncle Waldo to bed. Say, now, what's all the whispering about, huh? Now, 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 girls, girls, don't trust your old Uncle Waldo. Why, you'll, you'll wake up the whole neighborhood! still got phil harris being with his great yeah, voice and that's his charming the first presence. thing i put you cannot it doesn't matter how dull the rest of the film is you've got uh, phil harris's wonderful presence there he's so warm 
And, and it also helps that we have Eva Gabor doing mm. the voice of Duchess, who has possibly the most beautifully elegant voice ever recorded on tape. Agreed. She is lovely. Uh, even the kids, actually, that they have like their their precocious little kittens, and that should be like vomit inducing, but there's something kind of like you don't want anything bad to happen to them. Yeah, I mean they're not just they're not like obnoxiously. They're not like obnoxiously cute. They're just they're kind of just. I mean, just like kittens, cute little yeah. adorable things that run around, get into trouble. Well, actually, no, a better comparison that they're not like young Anakin or indeed old Anakin. <laughs> the less like Anakin of any age a character can be, the better off they're probably. <laughs> <are. laughs> uh, Sharon, anything particularly good about this that we haven't already mentioned? Um, I don't think so. I, I think my favorite thing about this one is probably. Thomas, mm-hmm. but again, a lot of that has to do with um, with the vocal work and Abraham uh, Delazy, Geo Sibicacy. Yeah, but he's he's not he's not really much of a character. There's not really a great deal to get involved. Well, if you switched his character uh, model out with a bear, it wouldn't seem out of place. No, no, <laughs> that's that's very true. I do, with the notable exception of. Racist cat. Um, yeah, I do quite there like is the, the token jazz number. racist cat. <laughs> this is um, the one played by um, Paul Winchell, uh, who also plays Tigger later on. The one who, I mean, you, if you've seen the Aristocats, he slams a symbol onto his head and has these kind of oh, saw teeth. Shanghai, Hong Kong, Egg Fu Yang. Fortune cookie always wrong. Not the hot one. Uh, sings a song about fortune cookies and it's like oh god jesus christ we're still not out of this yet okay carry on but and i'm just like racism (laughs) (laughs) the musical number itself is is quite i like that Mm -hmm. i like the randomness of it the fact that they come across this sort of nest of bohemian cats that in reality would be you know slinking around dustbins eating each other Also, Sterling Holloway as Roquefort is a, is a welcome addition. Absolutely. He gets still to very panic enough that there is a sense of danger, even if nobody else is. Like, the, the kittens are oblivious to it. They, they're yeah. never distressed, except when the girl gets washed downstream. Uh, the butler, Edgar, is, can be pretty entertaining. I mean, he's not dangerous as a Disney villain, but he's, uh, he's comical. He's a fun character to see just bumbling his way through everything yeah. he's doing. Also, the but way again, it adds it's, it's up light. how long the cats are going to live is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all entertaining, but it's not a whole... There's not any threat yeah. or mm. danger at any point I for anyone. There doesn't really need to be any danger, but there's also not much of anything else either. It's just a fun little cat adventure, which uh, a lot of these ones turned out to be. I think coming where it does in the, uh, in the process, though, and, and again, watching them all in order is given a wonderful overview of how the themes and ideas kind of run the next to the next to the next. Um, You've come off the back of a a sequence of films where you did have this overarching villain or sense of threat or something that kind of held the whole story together. So just a MacGuffin. Well, yeah. She shall prick her finger. But antics and, and humor and, and, um, uh, seemingly pointless asides notwithstanding in most of the films running up to this there had at least been a a goal that the the story was working towards um 
whereas with this one, it's like it, it's literally just like they've been put at point A, they have to get back to point B. Nothing really gets in the way of yeah. that. It's like Toy Story without Woody or Buzz learning anything. Mm. Oh, I'm yeah. a lost cat without the panic. It's like, oh, we are far from home. Mr. O'Malley, can you please take us home? Yes, I can. Well, that's okay then. Let's go home. And then they do. And that's pretty much it. It's just returning from B all the way back to A again. Now, the, one of my main issues with it is that it's, it's utter nonsense. The, um, this crazy old cat lady decides to leave the cats her entire estate but have the butler carry on in the same capacity as a butler. Well, surely it makes more sense to leave the estate to the butler on condition that he look after the cats. I mean, then yeah. you don't have a film, but it also makes much more sense. And why doesn't her solicitor say, um, it might be a good idea not to leave your aging butler absolutely nothing and waiting on a bunch of cats in like just being paid his standard wage to in an empty house. Doesn't make any sense. Give him the estate. Her, her ultimate conclusion at the end of the film is to let her house be a home for all of the alley cats of Paris. Maybe she's starting to lose her mind a bit. Yeah, it's going to stink in a day. Just imagine them rutting on the stairs. Jesus. And then they will eat her and taste This is the stuff that uh, isn't in the D- Disney will. documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why. I think the, the problem with this for me is that there's there's a, a mood I have to be in to be able to watch the Aristocats. It's whimsy. And it's, yeah, the, the, basically there has to be absolutely zero cynicism in my brain at all. Because normally, if I'm feeling quite stressed, like an emergency kitten picture or something like that can chill me out quite nicely. That's because you're very angry. You're unable to deal with criticism. Why does everyone keep saying that? Now, what I want you to do... Look at the picture of the kittens in a barrel. Yeah. Look at them, they're the whale of a time. They're all happy. <laughs> One on the left, Philip. Philip. Look at Philip's eyes. He's got little eyes. Whenever you're feeling a bit angry, I want you to look at Philip. Look at his face. And your anger will recede like an ocean. But the Aristocats, I find that if I'm just... If the needle is just the wrong side of cynical, the, the kittens just annoy me and the punchline is the aristocats um, <laughs> yeah that's the version i'm holding out for which pet's address is the finest in paris which pets possess the longest pedigree which pets get to sleep on velvet mats naturellement the aristocats which pets are blessed with the fairest forms and faces which pets know best all the gentle social graces which pets live on cream and loving pats naturellement the aristocats they show aristocratic pairing when they're seen upon an airy an aristocratic flair in what they do and what they say Aristocats are never found in alleyways or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play. Oh no, which pets are known to never show their claws? Which pets are prone to hardly any flaws? Do you hear that? Which pets are prone to hardly any flaws? I think I've just worked out why the Aristocats doesn't work for me. In regard to the kind of the safeness of the film and the lack of real 
Fred or Punch. I can think of maybe two reasons in their total guesses, but one of them could be like looking to TV animation at the time, like we're getting right into the 70s. I think this is like a year before the ACT forms, which is just kind of a upstart group of like uh, families and parents and mothers who are wanting to like pull out all the like offensive or dangerous or just they're really wanting to mellow out animation in general, which is why you get all these all this stuff like uh, Scooby-Doo in the 70s stuff with like no villains and lessons for the kids and no one gets hurt. And it's very Uh. and TV animation of that era is just so stripped of all teeth and interest. And it's all just so very light and inoffensive. And I wonder if this maybe that was just sort of something that was in the air at the time that this kind of fed into as well. And it, but it also just might have been that with Walt gone, I expect there was kind of, there was people were starting to feel a little bit cautious. Let's like not they, do anything daring at this stage. Yeah, it was just like they, I can feel like these next couple of films getting more reserved, and obviously budget is part of that. Mm. But they're also a bit less ambitious. I, I mean, Wooly Reitherman, who's the director, was looking for efficiency measures wherever he could find them on this movie, like. Uh, O'Malley was originally going to be a striped tabby, but like that's really complex to animate. Shere Khan took forever. Let's yeah. make him simple and orange and white and just make this easier. They the did manage wor- to put on a slightly uneven white foot that's, that, that he, so he's not symmetrical, making it slightly more complex for animators, so you, you feel a bit more that he's a bit there's a bit of moggy in there, and it's not just that he's a perfectly orange cat. Yeah, I like that design choice too. Yeah. But I mean, the kittens were originally going to be long hairs. They were turned into short hairs because that's easier. Yeah. Uh, there was apparently going to be an entirely like another antagonist character at some point, a maid named Elvira, who Edgar uh, was yeah. teamed up with. It was amorous with her. And it was basically this team just combined it into one character. It, I do feel a lot of playing it safe in this movie and yeah. with Walt gone and kind of all the uncertainty that would follow, I suppose I can't blame them. Yeah. I mean, in the end it still did all right in the box office it was just modest success enough to put a few more movies in production and stave off the studio getting closed. So I don't it, know. Su- uh, it success. fulfilled its job. Yeah. Yeah. I like the cheat your cheat your only like they make it home on a healthy fish with the big backbone. I'm Abraham the lazy. Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley, O'Malley the alley cat, I've got that wanderlust, gotta walk the scene, gotta kick up highway dust, feel the grass that's green, gotta strut them city streets, showing off my clad, yeah. Telling my friends of the social elite Or some cute cat I happen to meet That I'm Abraham DeLacy, Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley O'Malley the alley cat You said that the animation still looks beautiful. If you go from the... Um the Blu-ray of uh, 101 Dalmatians to the Blu-ray of Aristocats, there is a huge difference. There's a lot more construction lines in this one, especially on um, the uh, the Cat Lady. There are. I, I expect they might have. That might have been another efficiency measure, just playing it a bit more loose, not worrying too much about tightening the lines down. I, I mean, I personally, just as an animator, I know I favor those construction lines a bit more yeah. than 
It, it definitely does. Oh, look I don't dislike them. them. Like I said uh, last week, it's um, I actually kind of do, I like them as well. It, it makes it feel more like claymation. Like you can see the uh, you can see the workings out with your, with uh, the spaces that you're observing at the speed of 20, thirty frames per second. Or this uh, twenty four. Twenty four frames per second. Yeah. I did wonder actually if, and this is something that becomes much more of a possibility as the time progresses through these films, but in Walt's absence and this idea of reducing budgets, they do seem to be moving away from the idea of, of getting things perfect or at least getting things done the, the absolute best that you can. Absolutely. Yeah, it's much more... This is our budget. We're keeping this contained. We're not getting crazy ambitious or we're yeah. not doing that crazy Sleeping Beauty thing again where we just throw money at it to try to make it look as perfect as possible. Let us mm-hmm. just try to make a movie that we can actually get money back on. And I don't, you can just kind of, the way the budgets are shrinking, you can just feel the waning confidence in the studio and from, from within and from the higher ups who would be making the business yeah. decisions, they also space them out a lot more. The uh, the the 60s and 70s, they only managed to make one, two, three, seven, six. If you don't count Winnie the Pooh, which was technically uh, cobbled together, and that's over 20 years, six over 20. Uh, as we get as we move on, there comes a time when it becomes an annual thing. So at this stage, they were not doing that. And looking at it over time, it seems it, it comes apparent they need these periods of, you know, putting just throwing themselves into to doing something daring and and uh, pushing forward the technology and pushing forward animation. But then they need to back up and do effectively budget films and work with what they've been able to work out in the past few years, just so they can stay afloat. Because if there were, if every single time it was just a budget film, there would be no standards. If every single time it was just a huge risk, they'd be dead already. Definitely. And by this point, after Sleeping Beauty and uh, after the ink, uh, after the, the hand ink uh, process was done with, the company would have been down to a very low number of people too and those people would have also been getting pulled in to work on some stuff for tv and commercials and things like that so they their attention was probably pretty well divided which may also account for how few of these were coming out but yeah looking at 1970 there's three movies and the winnie the pooh which had kind of been getting worked on bit by bit throughout the 60s and 70s yeah That's all from us this week. We will be back next week with Disney's Robin Hood and a discussion with Lauren Grieve, a timely one, I might add, considering the release of Zootopia, on why Robin Hood is one of the most important films for the furry community. I'll leave you with that thought. Everybody wants to be a cat. Everybody wants to be a cat Because a cat's the only cat Knows where it's at. Tell everybody's picking up on that feline beat. Cause everything else is obsolete. Strict high button shoes. Square with the horn makes you wish you weren't born. Every time he plays. But with the square in the act, you can set music back. Do the caveman days. I've heard some carny birds who tried to sing. Still, the cat's the only cat who knows how to swing. Who wants to dick, long head dick, stuff like that? 
When everybody wants to be a cat A square with a horn Makes you wish you weren't born Every time he plays Oh, a rinky-tinky-dinky With a square in the act You can set music back To the caveman days Oh, a rinky-tinky-tinky Everybody wants to be a cat Because a cat's the only cat Oh! 